When a lot of evangelicals think of giving your testimony, the first thing that comes to mind is tell them how you experienced salvation and Jesus has made you whole, you were lonely. But that's not what we see in the book of Acts when it comes to witness and testimony, right? That giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Yeah, it's less about our subjective experience of what Jesus has done in our lives, but more about the objective reality of what God has accomplished in history. Hey, Mike Horton here. If you're new to the White Horse Inn and want to know what you believe and why you believe it, be sure to visit our website in order to sign up for a free membership. When you sign up at whitehorsein.org, you'll get free access to the 12 most recent extended-length episodes, along with discussion questions for each program and terms to learn. And you can get your free membership just by signing up at whitehorsein.org forward slash member. That's whitehorsein.org slash member. Hey there, folks. Don't forget to add Modern Reformation to your fall reading list. Right now, we're offering a special discounted rate and a free issue. Subscribe now for only $25 and get seven issues instead of the normal six. If you subscribe today, you'll get our September-October edition on emotion in the Christian life. And included with every subscription, you'll get access to 25 years of archived issues on our website. To take advantage of our fall special, simply head to modernreformation.org forward slash fall. That's modernreformation.org forward slash fall. Five centuries ago, in taverns and public houses across Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge inn called the White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition, welcome to the White Horse Inn. Hello and welcome to another edition of the White Horse Inn where we are talking about the book of Acts, spreading the word. You know, frequently repeated throughout the book of Acts is the announcement that the word of God spread. In fact, this was the same as saying that the church grew. And that's because the word, particularly the gospel of God's Son, creates the church. People often associate the book of Acts with spectacular signs and wonders. But actually, the main message is about the gospel going out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, namely the seat of Rome itself. Nor is it really the acts of the apostles, but the acts of the triune God working through the word. So we're going to take a foray into this rich and rewarding introduction, the first volume really of church history as part of our continuing series on the Word and the Sacraments. And to do that, you have uh, very familiar voices on the program today. Caleb Bassett, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fallbrook, California. Caleb, as always, it's great to have your insights. Thanks for having me here. And Sam Albury, uh, minister of the, in the Church of England, author of a number of books, including Is God Anti-Gay? Why Bother with Church? And Lifted, a great book on the resurrection. Sam, uh, as always, it's great to have you back on the White Horse Inn. Thanks for having me. And Adriel Sanchez is pastor of North Park Presbyterian Church in San Diego, California. I'm Mike Horton. I teach at Westminster Seminary, California. Well, first of all, it's generally agreed in the commentaries that the thesis statement of the whole book of Acts is found here in the eighth verse of chapter one, but you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the last question they ask that provokes this response is, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? How significant is it that Jesus answers that question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, by telling them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come at Pentecost? Um, if I can kick off, I think it's it's hugely significant because it shows that the kingdom is not going to be restored by the ballot box or by the sword. It's going to be, actually, it's a spiritual kingdom which the Holy Spirit needs to work to produce. Yeah, so Sam's right. The big question here for the, the disciples was always this question of the kingdom. How's the kingdom going to return? Messiah is going to do that, but how? And they're thinking in terms of military or cultural might and victory. And he signals right away, hold on a second. This is going to be from a different kind of power, a power from the Lord, from the spirit himself. That's right. And it seems like they have a narrow view of the kingdom as well, because they're thinking Jerusalem. Now is the time, the restoration of Israel and the Lord Jesus. As a nation. That's right. And, and the Lord is pointing them out to, no, this isn't just about Israel. The kingdom of God is going to spread throughout the entire world, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost the uttermost parts of the earth. So in that 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and the ascension, when he's basically taking them to seminary and teaching them about the kingdom, they get now that the exodus that he was to accomplish in Jerusalem was a greater exodus than a replay of the old covenant exodus. But they're still not quite <laughs> sure about the conquest I mean, it's hard for us as Gentiles to go back and th and think like the disciples were thinking in terms of exodus, conquest, rest in the land of Canaan. They think that Messiah is just going to basically replay all of that, right? Mm -hmm. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I came, I fulfilled the law. I fulfilled all the types and shadows, and I accomplished an exodus far greater than the one that your fathers experienced. And it's not just for Israel, it's for the world. And it's not a kingdom where you're going to live in this plot of real estate in the Middle East, but it's the meek will inherit the earth. It's a far greater promise, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and the fact that Jesus is the one who is accomplishing it is, I think, a point that Luke is trying to make at the outset of the book of Acts, because he begins right there in verse one by saying, in the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. It's almost as though he's suggesting here that this volume, Luke's second volume, is the continuation of what Jesus mm -hmm. is doing and teaching in the world and in the church today. And there's a little bit of a tension, though, because in Acts one, Jesus leaves. He ascends to heaven. But in some sense, according to Luke, he's still active in the church today, working. We read in verse 1 of chapter 2 now, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Mm -hmm. First of all, there are questions about what these tongues were. There is a term for ecstatic utterances that people don't understand. But is that what's happening here? You know, are people just sort of babbling? 
this is almost like a movie trailer, isn't it, of what the rest of the Kingdom program is going to involve. We're seeing that the witnesses that they're to be are, they're going to be verbal witnesses, that they are speaking of what they have known and what they've experienced. That's what it is to be a witness. And I think the fact that they're speaking in a way that all these people gathered can hear them in their own language, again, is a foretaste of what we will see eventually in the book of Revelation, where there is a heaven filled with people from every tribe, tongue and nation. So it's a kind of, it's a movie trailer. This is this is what we're going to be seeing as the kingdom progresses in this age. Yeah. And going back to something that you had asked, Mike, I think that we would, we would certainly want to say that these are actual languages and it does emphasize the fact that the spirit is empowering the church to engage in this cross-cultural mission. So this the is, word will go quickly. That's right. Yeah. So it, this really isn't just about Jerusalem or Israel. This is about the whole world hearing and understanding the truth of the gospel. And unfortunately, I think, especially today with with the rise of things like Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement, we get all focused on the gifts and the miracles and, and tongues in particular. And we miss some of the great sort of redemptive historical realities that are happening here. When you think about uh, the Holy Spirit breathing on the church here, this is the idea of new creation. In fact, the word that Luke uses here um, when he talks about the wind coming in, it's a really rare New Testament word. It's only used by Luke on one other occasion in Acts 17, verse 25, where he talks about how God gives to all people life, breath, and all things. And it's the same word used in the Septuagint, Genesis 2, 7, that talks about the breath of life in man. So this is God breathing on his church, the, the picture of new creation. Meant to be an allusion to Genesis 1, 2. That's right. You think of the end of John's gospel where Jesus speaks to the disciples after he had risen from the dead and he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Ghost. So one of the big themes that we have here is new creation. Mm. And, and even with the language question, um, it it seems, again, there's debate over what, what is the exact nature of this language miracle. Um, but you see the, the people there who heard this, they, they exclaim that they're each hearing the speech in their own native language. So I think for sure we can rule out this as being some sort of uh, miraculous utterance that no one can understand mm-hmm. or some language that's never been heard before, some, some sort of uh, what they might call angelic. it. Angelic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an angelic language, a charismatic type gift as it's called today. This is a human language of some kind, and it's meant to communicate clearly. The, the gospel. Right. That's They actually get something from it, not just an amazing scene. And then uh, let's not forget how another part of this coming up right after this is Peter's sermon. There's another gift of the Spirit here that this is the Peter who denied Jesus and was, was kind of hiding up during the time after the crucifixion. Denied Jesus three times to a little girl? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That formidable foe, the little girl there. <laughs> And here he is with this bold sermon where he just, out in public, there's this tremendous courage that's given by the Spirit to the apostles at Pentecost. The greatest sign, really, of Pentecost is Peter preaching Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. And people are actually, and here's here's the, the, the first miracle is that Peter, as you mentioned, Peter's the one doing this. And he's doing it clearly. He understands now that Christ is the center of the scriptures. And secondly, that the response of the people is instead of stoning and outrage, their hearts being cut to the quick and saying, what must we do to be saved? And then you, then you have um, throughout, as you all have been saying, the emphasis on now the word spreading. The whole emphasis is, yeah, of course, there are signs and wonders that attend this 
initial spread of the gospel like rocket boosters. But it's the gospel that's the rocket. You know, you have in, in Acts 2.14 and following Peter standing with the eleven, lifting up his voice and addressing them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, give ear to my words. Not focus on the signs and wonders, but give ear to my words. Or in chapter 2, verses 37 and following, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said, brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so then you see people gather. What's the effect of this? Well, the effect is the same word that created this community— sustains the community. They gathered regularly for the apostles' teaching and fellowship, for the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. I think also significantly straight after Peter says, this promises for you and your children, he then says, Luke then tells us that with many other words, he bore witness. So again, we're seeing what it means to bear witness. What that tongue of fire really means. Yeah. From then on, really, the examples of the sermons we have in the book of Acts are are of the same type. It's preaching Christ from the Scriptures, not, hey, let me tell you what happened to me, and, you know, you can have your best life now and hear, like, five tips for a better marriage and so forth. But the proclamation of Christ is the fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams and longings of God's people. It's a really important point, Mike, and I think something like 30% of the book of Acts is just written sermons that we find that were preached by Peter, by the Apostle Paul. So it seems like this is a really important thing that Luke wants us to get, that the the preaching is what's central. Mm -hmm. And so often, you know, again, we can, because they are amazing and spectacular and extraordinary, we can focus on the miracles and forget about the fact that these signs, just like in the ministry of Jesus, were ultimately pointing to Christ and the Word and the offer of salvation, the forgiveness of sins. I mean, that's that's what the focus is, and that's really what the focus in our ministries has to be as well today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. That very point is made again in Acts 3. Peter and, and John heal a lame man at the entrance to the temple, but then they don't go on to, to have a healing line. Mm. Instead, standing in Solomon's portico there in the temple, Peter proclaimed to the crowd saying, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. I mean, good sort of one rush of words, Peter turns them from the sign of healing the the lame man to the reality signified, namely, that Jesus Christ was crucified, but God raised him from the dead. This was foretold by the prophets— Therefore, repent, your sins will be blotted out, and Christ ascended will return one day to make all things new. Basically, everything from uh, his, uh, his death 
all the way to his return in glory in one bold sentence. So this is the heart of what it's all about. Hey, don't fasten your eyes on the sign, Mm -hmm. but look at the reality signified. I love that he also says, don't look at us. It wasn't through our own piety or power that we made this man walk again. You know, he says in chapter three, verse 12, it's not about us. This is the work of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus. It's changing this person and and can change you as well if you repent of your sins. So if it was in the name of Jesus, this is that this lame man walks, you can be confident that it's in the name of Jesus that you can be saved from God's judgment. That's the point. On the next day, the rulers, elders, and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem in order to inquire of Peter and the others how they were able to heal the lame man. This is Acts 4, 1 through 8. And we read, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you, all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It just reinforces again how dramatically Peter has changed, doesn't it? I was just thinking about (laughs) they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They didn't understand when Jesus said he was going to be raised from the dead. Uh, They weren't stood outside the tomb on Easter Sunday with welcome banners and all the rest of it. What they fail to believe in and understand the significance of, they they now get, they're seeing that in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead is is now being proclaimed. Something has happened of of eschatological significance. It's an extraordinary change. And to have Peter say to these strictly monotheistic Jews that there is no other name that is the name of Jesus of Nazareth under heaven by which we must be saved, it's lost on us, I think, how radical that would have been. And then their reaction. It's from Isaiah. That's from Isaiah where no other name but Yahweh. Clearly, they knew what was being claimed here. Yeah. And and then they're so flummoxed. I mean, often you see these kinds of things in the ministry of Jesus. They want to pick up stones. And here they just, they're floored by his boldness. It says they perceive they were uneducated common men, and yet they were astonished. And then they... They saw the man they had healed, and, and even the, the eyes of these rulers, it seems, are being opened at least a little bit to the reality of what's going on right under their noses. Mm-hmm. And then in verse 33 of chapter 4, uh, we read, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There again, testimony and witness. I think when a lot of evangelicals think of giving your testimony or bearing witness The first thing that comes to mind is tell them how you were a wretch and you experienced salvation and Jesus has made you whole, you were lonely, not at all to downplay the the real personal benefits that accrue. But that's not what we see in the book of Acts when it comes to witness and testimony, right? That giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, Mm. that's what giving your witness or your testimony really means in the book of Acts, right? 
Yeah, it's less about our subjective experience of what Jesus has done in our lives, which, as you said, Mike, is real and important, but more about the objective reality of what God has accomplished in history. Jesus came, died for our sins, rose again from the dead, and now is commanding all people everywhere to repent. Hmm. And we see that in, in chapter three, because when the lame beggar is healed, if we were writing the book of Acts, we would then follow the lame beggar and he sets up lame beggar ministries <laughs> and we, we follow him doing his road show but we don't he he's healed but then we're back on peter and we're back on the message mm, great point jumping to acts 5 uh, we read in verse 42 and every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the christ is jesus that the messiah is jesus Again, isn't that amazing? In the temple and from house to house, the emphasis here is on teaching and preaching Jesus Christ, bearing witness to his resurrection, showing how from all the scriptures, the Old Testament, Jesus is the central character of the story. That's how people are saved. That's right. And, and that's their primary role. You see that throughout uh, the rest of the book of Acts and then even, you know, the next chapter in Acts chapter 6 where you have the institution, what some people believe is the institution of the diaconate. You know, the, the church is growing and now there's these diaconal mercy ministry needs that are cropping up. Are the apostles going to be focused on that, devoted to that? And they say, well, no, we need to be focused on the ministry of the word and on the prayer. So they call together godly men filled with the spirit so that they can devote their attention to this while the disciples, while the apostles are continuing to preach the word and to pray. So they saw it as their primary role as well. And that seems to bear out the importance of two things. One, as you say, Adriel, the importance of the, the centrality of the ministry of the word in the life of the church, but also the importance of caring for the diaconal needs of people's bodies. Mm -hmm. You know, they really, they were hungry. And so the church took care of its own. But in order to do that, you had to divide the offices. So pastors today should make it their one focus to preach and teach and pray and administer the sacraments. Elders serve by looking after the spiritual welfare of the people, and then deacons will look after their physical needs. Mm -hmm. If all those offices are running well, then the word of God spreads. And that's what we see right after this episode, right? It, after the deacons are appointed, and now the word of God is unfettered from being preoccupied with quote-unquote practical temporal needs. We read Acts 6, 7, and the word of God continued to increase. Isn't this a strange way of putting it? We maybe have heard it said so many times that we've kind of lost the strangeness of this. We don't usually talk about words increasing, but that is the way the Bible talks about God's speech, isn't it? It's living and active. Like a fire. Well, one of the things that I'm thinking about what you were just saying is recognizing how the word of God spreads so often through adversity as well. Because what you have in Acts 7 is the stoning of Stephen, persecution of the church. And then chapter 8 begins, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Mm. This scattering in God's providence is what resulted in the church 
leaving Jerusalem, going into Judea and Samaria, and then ultimately to the other most parts of the earth to continue to preach the gospel. So it's sort of interesting how you have the persecution of the church resulting in the advancement and spread of the gospel. It's like that that ancient saying, you know, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and, and you see that here. Well, it, it also reminds us that no revival is, is uncostly, mm. because you, we have pushback from the very beginning, people accusing them in chapter two of being drunk and then opposition and, and so on. We're not going to get the increase of the word without the increase of those threats and obstacles. But one of the wonderful things we see from chapter seven is that sometimes it takes Christians losing for the gospel to win. Yeah. Yeah, that strange apparent contradiction in Matthew 24 where Jesus says that, uh, you know, the, the gospel will increase. There will be great success of the gospel in this time between his comings. And yet, right alongside it, he describes horrible times of persecution and tribulation and suffering for the church. In chapter 8, Right after that persecution instigated by Saul, where Stephen is stoned, Philip then went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. So this is what you're talking about, Adriel, that driving out of Jerusalem, and now, actually, we're having fulfilled in narrated form that promise that Jesus gave at the beginning of this book. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria— and then the uttermost parts of the earth, in other words, completely Gentile land. I think Luke certainly wants us as we read that. We're, we're checking boxes, aren't we? As we read, we're thinking Jerusalem, check, Judea, check, Samaria, excellent. It's all going according to plan, even though there's hardship on the ground and they don't know what's coming around the corner. We're reading it with the hindsight of one verse eight and thinking, yep, 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 yep. This is all, this is how God is doing it. It's amazing. Isn't that why Paul's conversion is so central to the narrative here in the book of Acts, and that once Paul becomes an apostle, his overarching goal, in fact, this sort of takes over as the basic narrative of the book, is to go to Rome. Mm -hmm. And the, from the time Paul is converted on, basically he becomes the central character or the main supporting actor driving everything to Rome. Yeah, that's right. I think you hit the nail on the head, especially you get to chapters 13 to 28. You have a focus on the ministry of the Apostle Paul, getting the gospel out. And one of the things I wanted to mention, too, and going back to the uh, Samaritans in chapter 8, this is one of the reasons why I think you see so many extraordinary shows of the Holy Spirit is because God is trying to help at least the Hebrew people recognize that, hey, the Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit just like you all are. Mm -hmm. And you see that throughout the book of Acts. It's kind of this great big surprise. Even when you look at the Jerusalem Council, it's like, hey, these Gentiles can join the church without becoming Jewish. You all know? these great unwashed flooding into the church. <laughs> that's right. They're, they're getting the Holy Spirit just like we did. Okay, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. That's what's taking place. And that's going to keep happening throughout the remainder of the book of Acts with a focus on the ministry of the word. In fact, Paul says in uh, Acts 20, verses 18 to 28, uh, he tells the, the elders at Ephesus, so there's already a church established in Ephesus, you yourselves know how I lived among you, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, I testify to you 
this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's what pastors should be able to say at the the end of their ministry in a particular church, right? It's a heavy responsibility, isn't it? There are certain passages we love to preach that are easy to preach, that are going to be well received, but we we know that within the whole counsel of God, there's stuff that will get us in trouble. Mm. So we, we can see why pastors shrink back from teaching on certain issues or certain texts. But but that, that comment Paul makes about, I'm innocent of the blood of all, that's very striking, isn't it? Uh, it implies that actually if we if we don't preach the whole counsel of God, there will be there may well be someone's blood on our hands because of that. Yeah, that's sobering. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, God's words to the prophet Ezekiel, how he called him to be a watchman and, and call people to repentance. If you don't do it, their blood is on your hands. If we don't think that the whole heart and center of the ministry, the reason that Christianity grows and spreads and is effective in the lives of people, that whole reason is focusing on Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners, from Genesis to Revelation, teaching, preaching, reasoning in the synagogue and the marketplace concerning him, teaching, convincing people, persuading people. If we don't think that that is really the heart and soul of how the gospel spreads and churches grow, if we turn to business principles, if we turn to therapeutic techniques and obsessions, if we do psychobabble, if we do, you know, all, all sorts of uh, train wrecks in the form of entertainment and so forth, we are off point. We may find ourselves one day uh, with the sad reality that there's blood on our hands and uh, we will have to give an account for those ministries that we thought were spectacular and sparkling but in fact will be revealed on the last day as nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. Sober words for us to reflect on here from the book of Acts, uh, a wonderful history, just an amazing story of how the rocket got launched. And however many of the boosters fell away as it went into orbit, however few signs and wonders we see in the world today, we know that that same gospel now is still as powerful as it ever was, the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's the ministry of word and sacrament that we find not only held up in the book of Acts, but effective as the word of God spreads, the kingdom of God spreads the ends of the earth. Folks, thanks so much for being with us on this edition of The White Horse Inn. If you'd like more information about who we are, what we're all about, be sure to visit us online at whitehorseinn.org. You can find a number of free articles there. Remember, too, that uh, White Horse Inn is a listener-supported broadcast. We need your help to get this message out. All of our monthly supporters receive longer editions of every program, along with a subscription to our magazine, Modern Reformation. Once again, the web address is whitehorseinn.org. That's whitehorseinn.org. Thanks for being with us, and we'll see you again next time at the White Horse Inn.